Okay, so we're going to start in one uh, minute with Parashat Vayigash, if people want to find that in their Tanakh or on their uh, Safari. Um, I'm just going to mute the people who are unmuted right now, just so when Rabbi Silver starts, we can all hear, but I, I will unmute people when they ask questions, if they need help with that. Um, um, I believe Rabbi Silver is just about to get back. So as it's 10 o'clock, I will start with my regular little spiel. Um, first of all, of course, welcome everybody. Shavuot Tov. Um, good morning and good evening, depending on your time zone. We're so happy to be learning with you again this week. Welcome to Joseph and Jacob, A Journey Through Genesis with Rabbi David Silber. Um, as you come into the Zoom room, I will invite you to become a panelist. That just means that if you choose, you can turn your camera on so we can see your lovely smiling faces. Um, and when Rabbi Silber invites questions and comments, you can unmute yourself and um, ask them yourself. Um, when you're not speaking, we just ask that you keep yourself on mute because otherwise there's background noise. It means that people can't hear. Um, and if you prefer, you can put any questions or comments in the chat. And if you're uh, joining on Facebook Live, then you can put them in the comments and I will bring them to the Zoom. Um, I will be sharing the sources on, on the screen on Safaria, but of course you're welcome and encouraged to follow along uh, with your Tanakh at home uh, or on your own Safaria. And uh, over to Rabbi Silva. Thank you very much. Okay, so we continue our own journey through Genesis and we're up to chapter 44 in the... Um, 18th Pasuk, which is actually Parshat Vayigash. And we come here to the speech of Yehuda. As we remember, uh, Yosef has uh, put his goblet into the silver goblet into the sack of Binyamin, his brother. And the claim is that this silver goblet is a kind of divining instrument that he's a menachesh. And they find the goblet in Binyamin's sack. Joseph sends one of his men to run out after them and say, what did you... Uh, take this goblet, special goblet of my master Joseph. He, uh, he divines with it, and the brothers say, we didn't take that. Why we, we return the money that we found in our sacks. Whoever took it should die, we'll be slaves. And the fellow says, no, no. The one who took it will be a slave. And the rest of you go back in peace. But they all head back, all the brothers head back to the house of Yosef who's still there. And Yosef again accuses them and says, listen, um, you shouldn't have done this. You should not have repaid good with evil. And uh, Yehuda speaks up then. Yehuda takes the stage at the just a few verses prior to our verse, verse 18 and says, well, we'll, well, all of us will be slaves. God has found that our sin. We have nothing to say. We have no, no response. And uh, we'll all be slaves. And Yosef says, no. Uh, just the one that took it will be the slave. But the one with whom the, the goblet has been found shall be the slave. And the rest of you go back. That's where we're up to. So just a couple of comments before we start. First of all, you get a sense over here in the brother's response in both instances, both the first time and the second time, they have a sense of collective responsibility. 
it's, it's found in his sack. We discussed last week whether the brothers really believe he took it or not. And that depends on some other factors, not going back into that. But let's say that certainly a valid reading is that everybody knows that Binyamin, strong possibility, did not steal the goblet. In any event, uh, but the goblet was found in the sack. But the brothers say, well, initially, whoever took it should die, but we'll also be slaves. And at the end, Yehuda says, we'll all be slaves. So there's a real sense of collective responsibility. In contrast to the parallel story in Breshit that we read or studied earlier, that's when the ya Yaakov is leaving the house of Lavan and uh, Rachel steals the trophim. Rachel being Benjamin's mother, steals the trophim of her father, whom Lavan Lav calls my, 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 my gods. Lavan himself is a menachesh. The Torah says that Lavan said to Yaakov, Michashti. I have divined that ever since you came to my house, it's been good for me. So he says, Nikashti. So we have two parallel stories. Someone a foreign culture and takes with him, with her, the special object that represents that culture. In the first instance, it's the trafim of, of Lavan, which Rachel does steal. In the second instance, it's Rachel's son, Binyamin, who is accused of stealing a divining object, which is, um, which is related to the culture of, of the land in which they are leaving. And by the way, I would add to this that according to some commentaries, the trafim, I mean, I suggested at the time, and I believe it's the most plausible interpretation, that the primary reason that Rachel takes the trafim is that they are some kind of fertility god. Everything Rachel does is to have children. But others have suggested that the trafim are not so much about fertility god and more about kind of GPS. They can tell you where the person has run off to. I mean, I don't actually think that's the best interpretation, but the point is that it's interesting if it is the, inter it's, a, it's a kind of divining instrument. So it would really be parallel to what you have over here in terms of the brothers are running away and leaving Mitzrayim and taking with them this divining cup. In any event, two stories are obviously parallel stories. But in the first instance, Yaakov said, whoever took it should die. When Lavan accuses him of stealing his truck, why did you steal my gods? You, you're running off to go home. You desire to go to your father's house. Why did you steal my gods? And Yaakov said, no, I, well, listen, with whomever you find it, same word, Timsa should not live. But Yaakov did not say, and I also am responsible. Yaakov put the blame on the one that took it, but accepted no personal responsibility, even though Yaakov's the head of, head of the family. So what he probably should have said is whoever took it is guilty. I'm also guilty because I'm the, I'm the patriarch of the family. I'm the head of the family. He did not say that. But the brothers over here do say that. Whoever took it should die. We're also slaves. We're also responsible. When Yehuda goes farther, we're all, the, we're all slaves. We're all equally responsible. We are in the one with whom the cup has been found. So that's actually very interesting. By the way, just, just as a side point, the verse I just cited earlier, back in chapter 31, which is when Lovin says to Yaakov, first of all, why did you steal away in the night? Why did you run off without telling me? That's the first accusation. And then Lovin added in chapter 31, okay, I understand. You desire to go to your father's house. 
Why do you steal my, my gods? You're going off to your, your father, to your land, to your God. What do you want with my God? But what's interesting in the verse in chapter 31, when Roman says you desire to go home, the Hebrew is nichsot nichsafta. Nichsot nichsafta is to desire, but can't, one can't help seeing that nichsot nichsafta is the same word as kesef. Maybe that's the meaning of kesef, something that you desire. It's a, a, a desirable good is kesef, which means silver, but it also means money. And there you have a play on the kesef and the why did you steal my gods, which is a, a sort of a play on you're kind of a double thief. You not only stole my gods, but you stole a valuable thing of mine. And what's interesting is over here in the Yosef Binyamin business, it's all about kesef. He returns the kesef to all the brothers. And then the gavia, gavia ha-kesef, the silver goblet. So the two stories are even linked in terms of the kesef, the accusation that Lovin makes of Yaakov as your thief, not just stealing my gods, not just running away, but you're a thief in general, in accusing him in effect of stealing his, his taking his wealth from Lovin, which Yaakov does do, but I wouldn't call it theft. I would call it legal manipulation. He, he abides by the contract. He tricks Lovin, but he abides by the contract. But there you have the plan of Kesef. Here you have Kesef. In short, the two stories are parallel. And what the parallels underscore is the fact that the brothers are taking collective responsibility. But now Yehuda assumes the stage, even when they went home back in earlier in chapter 44, it says um, in verse number 14, Yosef. So it singles out Judah already in verse number 14. Judah and the brothers went back. So you know that Judah is going to assume the, the, the primary role over here. The Torah already has put Judah within the Joseph narrative. Back in chapter 38, Judah and Tamar, there's a whole chapter devoted to Judah. We spoke about that at length. And here <clears throat> we have, in a sense, the culmination or the, the deep connection between what happened in Judah and Tamar back in chapter 38 and now in this next speech of Judah. So we have over here, beginning with chapter 44, verse number 18, that we're about to begin, we're gonna have two long speeches. I'm not sure we'll get to both of them today. We have two long speeches. We have a very long speech of Judah, beginning with Vayigash Elav Yehuda, which will, will be followed by Joseph revealing Joseph's identity to his brothers. And then Joseph has a long speech. And one of the interesting things we'll be looking at, maybe not this week, maybe next week, is how one, how one reads one speech in light of the other comparison and contrast between the two speeches. But here we come to the first long great speech of Yehuda. The Joseph narrative in general, we've noticed this several times already, is, feels completely different from the rest of Sefer Breshit. It reads like a novel actually. And one of the features that it has is long speeches. And we'll talk about that a little in the future as well. But now let's begin with verse number 18. So this is really one of the great turning points in the uh, in the Joseph narrative. It says, Vayigash Elav Yehuda. So Judah Vayigash. Vayigash is to draw near. Judah draws near to him, him being Joseph. Vayomer bi Adoni. And he said, bi is taken usually as, and they translate, please. Please, my Lord. He calls Joseph Adoni. Yedabrna avdecha davar b'yezne Adoni. 
when, when your servants say something in the ears of my Lord, please don't be angry. You who are the equal of Pharaoh. He says, listen, I know maybe it's inappropriate to approach you, you being the supreme leader or equal to the supreme leader of Egypt. I come as your servant, but please let me, let me say something. Let me speak over here. So Yehuda steps forward. And the reason he steps forward, we know, he, and he says it later on, towards the end of his speech, he steps forward because back in chapter was it, 41, uh, he is the 41, 42. He's the one who, 42, he's the one who says to his father, send Binyamin with me. I will take responsibility. I'll be the Arev. And if I don't bring him back to you, I will be accounted a sinner all of my days. So Yehuda is in a very special position. He's not just one of the brothers, but he's the one brother, first of all, who convinced Yaakov to send Binyamin. Without Judah's commitment, Binyamin would not be in this situation. And second of all, he also put himself on the line. If I don't bring him back, I will be accounted a sinner. So he has two reasons. One is, is, is the whole thing is, he says, it's really my fault. I'm the one who, who my father didn't want to let him go, as we'll see, and I'm the one who's responsible for the situation. And there's the other part of it that he doesn't emphasize, but he's also could suffer a terrible, you know, I will be accounted a sinner all of my days. Before we get to the content of Judah's speech, I simply want to point out that the, the, it begins with the word Vayigash, to draw near. And Vayigash, to come close, to draw near, often means more than just physically standing up and walking towards. But Vayigash can mean more of trying to draw near in a, in a, in a deeper sense. So over here, it begins with Vayigash. That's what Yehuda says to Yosef. And when Yosef reveals himself to the brothers, first he says, I am Joseph, and the brothers are shocked. And then Joseph says to them later on in the chapter, in chapter 40, um, actually chapter 45, after Joseph reveals himself, he says, I am Joseph, and the brothers are shocked. Um, and then Joseph says in verse number four of chapter 45, Yosef Elechav, Kishuna Vayigashu. Verse number five, Kishuna Vayigashu. Um, you passed it, I think, already. No? Where's, yeah, verse number four. Verse number four. Come close to me. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold to Egypt. Um, so, come close to me. It's not just physically come close. It means let us, let's see if we can get closer to each other. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that the land in which finally the brothers, when they come to Egypt, the land in which they live in, and Joseph arranges it as, as such, is called Eretz Goshen, the land of closeness. And that's the whole point, that Joseph wants his brothers and his father especially to come down to Egypt, and not to simply live in Egypt. He doesn't want that. He wants them, you should be close to me. And the name of the land is the land of Goshen. So we have Vayigash of Yehuda, we have the Geshuna Vayigash of Joseph, and ultimately we have the land of Goshen. What we have over here is a coming closer, a drawing near. The family is, has to be rebuilt. That's what, this, that's what this is all about. That's what the speech is all about. And it's not so simple as we'll see, because there are many things that have to be 
have to be worked out in order for the family to be put back together. Remember, Jacob's dream was to build the house, the inclusive structure. But there are so many divisions within the family right now, and all of them, if it's going to work out that we can be one family, they have to be uh, have to be discussed, they have to be worked out, have to be able to come together on all these different issues. So let's now get back to Judah's speech. So first of all, Judah has an apology. It's interesting that Rashi, I think it's uh, not the shot at all. For Rashi, Rashi reads into Judah's speech two things. Number one, I want to come close to you, but B, if you don't want him close to me, then maybe we're going to have we're going to attack you and we're going to take uh, him by force. But of course, when you read the pasuk, that seems very far from the pshat. I mean, it's 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 a it's wishful thinking on Rashi's part, maybe that the Jew would have this kind of power to be able to dictate terms to the viceroy of Egypt. In, in the pshat of it, it's clearly that's not the case. And the word that's emphasized over and over again here is two words. First of all, the word Adoni, Joseph is the master, that appears 10 times. And then we have Evid, the servant, which appears a total of, I think Adoni is seven times. And Evid will appear 13 times in the chapter we'll discuss how it appears and when it appears. Anyway, now we'll start with Judah's speech. So Judah first draws near, has this sort of apology. Now he's gonna speak. And he says, the next pasuk in 19, He's now going to repeat the story. But what's interesting about Judah's speech is, first of all, what he says, and B, what he doesn't say. Those are two very interesting features. But what he does say is, you asked, the, the Adoni, master, asked the, asked the servants, do you have a father or brother? Now, the truth of the matter is, if you remember the story, that's not exactly what he asked them. He didn't, not in the text that we have. In the text that we have, he accuses them of being spies. And the brothers said, we're not spies, we're a bunch of brothers. In fact, there are 12 of us. 10 are here. One is back with our father. And the other one is missing, is a nano. That's what they, so he, he, Joseph didn't ask them, do you have a father or brother? What Yehuda intuits over here, correctly, is that actually, that is what Joseph is asking. That for whatever reason, Yehuda doesn't know why, but for whatever reason, he seems to have some interest in this family. And in particular, he has on more than one occasion asked about the old father, is he still alive? And initially, Yehuda has the sense that he's asking about the family. So he says to Yosef, you asked us. I'm recording what happened. I remember you asking us if we have a father or a brother, by the way, this point of that Joseph asked, do you have a father or a brother, which in the, in, in the initial story is not mentioned at all. But when the brothers speak to their father, when they come back from Egypt the first time and they um, find the silver in their, in, their, in, their, in their bags, the money in their bags, and they're all frightened. And Jacob says, he's not going, um, he's not going to, uh, to let Benjamin go. He's, he's afraid, you know, who knows what he suspects. And then Jacob, with that conversation there, and Yaakov asked his children, why did, you, why did you tell him you have a brother? And they all say to Yaakov, the man asked us. Shaul, Shaul, the man asked us. Let me, let me read exactly what it is. In chapter 43, they said, um, chapter 43, verse 7, 
says, why did you tell them you have another brother? Why did you harm me, says Jacob? They said, because they, they asked us, is our father still alive? Is there a brother? Now, in our text, we don't have that. But it doesn't mean that they, they, he didn't say it. He may well have said it. The Torah doesn't necessarily present it as recording everything Joseph said. But it's clear from what the brothers said back in chapter 43, and it's clear from what Yehuda says over here, neither Joseph said it explicitly, or Yehuda is hearing what Joseph is really saying. He's intuiting. You, you asked us, let's get back to our chapter now. You asked us, you Joseph, you bastard, because I don't know, you asked us, do you have a father or do you have a brother? And now we continue with verse number 20. And we said to, the, to, to our Lord, This is a very interesting puzzle. We said to our Lord, we have an old father, an Abzokain, and a Yelid Zikunim Katan, and a boy, a child, Zikunim. A child born of the, in, the, in the old age of his, a little child born in the old age of his father, a Yelud Zikunim. That's the first half of the verse. Biachiv mate, and his brother has died. He, he alone remains, uh, all that's left of his mother, and his father loves him. This is a very important puzzle for Yehuda's speech. So let's just go through this puzzle very carefully and then I will stop and take comments or questions. So Yehuda says, we, we answered you. We have an old father, an Abzakain, and a Yelud Zikunim. And there are two points here that are very interesting. First of all, he's drawing a line. Yehuda puts it in terms of the US about the father and the brother. And what Yehuda is saying over here that the father and brother are very similar. In the following sense, the Av is Zakain, and the Yelud is a Yelud Zikunim. So right away, there's some kind of link made between this particular child and the Av Zakain, the Yelud Zikunim and the Av Zakain. That's point number one. Point number two, equally important for our purposes, is that in the story back in chapter 37, this is the story of Jacob, Ewa Todot Yaakov Yosef, and it starts with Joseph. Um, it says that Yaakov loved Joseph more than all the other brothers. He ben zikunim hulo. He was a child born in his old age, a ben zikunim. Now, in point of fact, Joseph is not the youngest child, but he is the next youngest child. Benjamin is the youngest. But in that story over there, Benjamin doesn't appear at all, actually. So there's something to be said for the fact that the ben zikunim and now the yelud zikunim are tied together. So Binyamin is tied to his father in the language of the verse, and the Abzakain is tied to the, the Yelud Zikunim. But we remember that the Ben Zikunim was Yosef, so that Binyamin is being set up, up over here, and in fact is, one might say, the replacement for Joseph. He's the, he's the proxy of Joseph in the story. That's very important, because that means that the way that the brothers relate to Binyamin in the story over here, at present, is the way at present they might relate 
to Yosef. Not the way they once related to Yosef, which is that of a jealousy and hatred. Maybe that things have changed. We know that they feel sorry about Joseph. They said so. We are guilty for our brother who cried out that we didn't help him. That's the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse is even more interesting. But there's several interesting points in the second half of this verse. First of all, Viachiv mate, his brother has died. Now, in truth, when you look at the Chumash, which describes the story of uh, Yosef, um, and the brothers talk about Yosef, or the Torah talks about Yosef, uh, Yaakov talks about Yosef, the term the Torah uses is not mate. It's not mate. It's a nenu. The Torah uses the word a nenu for Joseph. Yosef a nenu v'shimon a nenu. A nenu. That's the term that's used. Moving comes back from the pit. Ayelet a nenu. Vani ona aniva. And the brothers themselves earlier, when Joseph asked about the family, we have a father, brothers with our father, with 12 of us, one is back with the father, and one is missing or not. Here he says mate, and only here. And the question is why? So the point is, the reason he says mate over here, as opposed to a nenu, because a nenu suggests the possibility that you might find him. He's, he's missing but maybe he'll be found. But if he's dead, he's gone. And the point over here is to emphasize the second half of this little line. He's all that, all that is left. And from his mother, Rachel, he's the only one left because the other brother is, 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 not, is dead. There's also another reason he says over here that I'll come to a little bit later. But let me just make the following observation about this pasuk and why it's such an interesting pasuk. What makes it a very interesting pasuk, I mean, each piece of it is interesting, Zakein and Zakunim, the mate as opposed to Enenu. But the last half of the pasuk, the words, anybody who reads the verse, of course, remembers that those words was spoken of Yaakov at a very particular time. When Yaakov returns from the house of Lavan, he returns, it's a story after running away from Lavan with the, with, with the Trafim actually. It's actually the next narrative, preparation for meeting Esau. There's part of that narrative. <laughs> Yaakov fears Esau, Esau is coming towards him with 400 men. Yaakov prepares for Esau. He, separates his family into two parts. He prays to God, he sends gifts. And then he brings the whole family over the, over the, over the wadi. Ma'avar yabok, the yabok crossing. He brings them all across the crossing with the possessions. And then the Torah says, Vayivartel Yaakov levado, and Yaakov was left alone. So here, we have to ask ourselves the question, here we're describing Binyamin. And now the question is, why is the Torah describing Binyamin as So on one level, the answer is simple. It's another link that the Torah is drawing between Binyamin on one hand, the Yerod Zikunim, and the Abzakein on the other. On one level, that's certainly true, because that's gonna be the main point of Yehuda. You can't separate the old man 
from this from, from the young child. They're inseparable. And I'll explain more later. However, I think it's fair to say that's not sufficient. That is true, but not sufficient. And it's got to be something else too. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. It's a very important point. Um, but let me just stop here for a moment and take any comments or questions. If anybody has a comment or questions till now. I think that there's another word that's very, that comes up again and again, and that's aviv. That comes up like 14 times in this parak. I think he, um, I get the feeling that he knows who Yosef is. And he's like, that's, he's pressing his button in particular by keeping in almost every pasa. He mentions it at least once or twice. In other words, he's being, I, I, you know, the Evan and the Adoni, but even more than that is the of. He's really pounding away at that. You know, your father, the father, the father, to to break him. Well, I, I, I wouldn't put it that way. I don't think he, I don't believe that the brothers know it's Yosef. I don't think you can say that because later on it makes it very clear. There are dumbfounded when he says it. So there's no way he knows it's Yosef, the case, not possible. But he does know one thing, that for whatever some strange reason, that Yosef has a deep interest in this old man, that he knows. And whatever the reason may be, that's gonna be his main line of attack over here. I'll, I'll explain it later on, but of course the word Avi is here. It's the last word of his speech also. It appears over and over again. I'll show you, so it's also the last word of, uh, of, uh, of Joseph's speech. So they each have, each in their own way have a very powerful connection to their father. Yudas' connection is very simply, apart from caring for his father, he also committed to his father. He said to him, he says, if I don't bring him back, I will be accounted a sinner to you all my days. So that he certainly doesn't want. He really sort of excommunicated from his father, whatever that entails. But no, I don't think he actually knows it's Yosef. I don't think we can say that, given the fact the prophet says it's quite the opposite. But you wouldn't be the first to suggest it. I, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's right. But um, okay. Let's. So let's. Anybody else? We have uh, a comment in the chat from yeah. Neva. She says Yaakov has referred to uh, has referred to the second in command to Pharaoh as the Ish, and he fought the Ish Levado. Yes, I will get to that later on. That's a very important point. I will. I. I will, I will get to that later on. That is where I'm going. Yes, correct. That still has to be, I have a particular take on it, but I will get to that. That is very true, that Joseph is referred to as the Ish. And by the way, not just here, but several times before, uh, when, ja when Yudas speaks to, to Yaakov and says, Yaakov says, get us more food. And Yudas says, we can't. He says, the Ish, the Ish said to us, go to Rupanai, you can't see my face without your, without your brother. So yes, so that is very significant, and I, that's where I'm headed with this thing. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. So we'll return to that. That's a good point. Okay, I hope to explain that or for a possibility. Fine. Now let's, let's continue. Next verse. So, so we, Yehuda is saying, we told you that we can't, we can't do this because he can't leave his father. Father loved him, and that's all he has left. He has nobody else. Uh, and you said to your servants, you, Joseph, said to us, bring him down 
I want to, I don't look at him. You Sima, I need a love. Let me play, I want to place my eye upon him, set my eyes on him. That's what you said to us. And, and we said to my Lord, again, this is, we don't have this in the initial, initial story. He said, the, 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 the Nar can't leave his father. If he leaves his father, now, the question is, who is Vamate? You can read it two ways. Uh, we said he can leave his father, or if he leaves his father, Vamate, he will die. Or you can read it, he can't leave his father, because if he leaves his father, Vamate, his father will die. Unclear, actually. I would say it's a case of purposeful ambiguity, because the point of Yehuda's speech is that the father and this particular child are actually inseparable. So you can't see who Vomate is. Vomate could be the father, Vomate could be the, the, the child. But either way, the two are inseparable. Now, and then the next verse is But you said, If you don't bring him down, you will not be allowed to see my face again. Maybe there's a play on Yosef. Now, the point over here is that what's interesting about this, this, this theme of seeing and seeing the face, it's what Judah said earlier. The man said, you can't see my face except if you bring the child down. And we remember then in the story that I just referenced, namely, right? when Jacob was left alone to wrestle with the mysterious Ish. But the context of that story is that Yaakov is, wants to make sure that Esau doesn't destroy him and, and his entire family. He has to figure out a way to make peace with his brother Esau. And prior to meeting Esau, who's approaching him, and the rest of the families on the other side of the Abok, we have this mysterious struggle with, the, uh, with this ish, with this person, human slash divine being, emissary of God, human being. And Jacob wrestles with the ish, and the ish cannot destroy Jacob. And the ish is forced to bless Jacob. And Jacob names the place of the wrestling Peniel, the face of God. For Jacob said, I have seen God face to face. And I have been saved. That's the end of chapter 32. So it talks about seeing the face, seeing God's face. I have survived the struggle with the Ish. I have seen God face to face and have survived. In the next chapter, when he finally meets Asaph in chapter 33, and he offers Asaph the gifts, and Asaph says, what's all this, uh, what are all these presents? What the, what's this stuff I'm seeing, all these animals? He says, this is my gift to you, says Yaakov to Asaph. For seeing your face, Kirot Pnei Elohim is like seeing the face of God, and you will uh, accept me, I would say, to accept me. Often the word Ratzon is used in terms of sacrifices. Um, so there you have, it's very striking that what Yaakov is seeking in the story is rapprochement with Esau. He wants to be able to coexist with Esau. 
and it's put in the terms of to see the face, the idea of seeing the face or seeing God's face. We have this already later in the Torah, three times a year to go up to the temple uh, to see, right? Right? The idea of seeing the face of God. So seeing the face of God presumably means God accepting you. Rapprochement with God, some kind of relationship with God, right? The name of the place which Jacob, the Akedah, Jacob, Abraham names the place Hashem Yireh. So the idea of seeing the face has a sense of forgiveness, but it's actually central to the story of, of Esau and Yaakov. So we have over here, one might see already two references to the Esau of Yaakov rapprochement, which is first of all, and now we come across and of course we all remember that when Jacob sent the brothers down with Benjamin to Egypt, he said to them, take this gift, which he calls a mincha, right? They prepare the mincha for, 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 for Yosef, the mincha, emphasis on the mincha. But that's what Yaakov sends to Esau to make the rapprochement mount with Esau. He, 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 he sends a mincha Achiv. So we have all kinds of connections now to the story of Yaakov and Esau, which narratively follows right after the story of Yaakov running away from Lavan and Rachel taking the trophim. So the stories line up perfectly, actually. The story of the Govia and now the speech of Vayigash lines up perfectly with Yaakov leaving the house of Ravan, followed by Yaakov's encounter with, with Asa. Now the difference between, we've already had intimations that the Yosef brother relationship is similar to the Yaakov Asa relationship. And I'll mention one in particular that's very interesting, that in the very beginning, of the, um, apart from the fact that the brothers actually tried to kill Yosef, which is another parallel between Yaakov and Esau. Esau says, I will kill my brother, he never does. But he's thinking about it and the brothers actually tried to. But what's interesting is the first speech, the first story of Yosef, we have Yosef's dreams. So there we are sheaving sheaves in the field and your sheep gets up and downs down to mine. Now remember in the case of Yaakov and Esau, when Rebecca is expecting twins, she doesn't understand what's going on, and she goes to seek out God with Rosh Hashem, and Hashem says, you have two nations inside you, one nation shall be more powerful than the other. And the Chumash plays off to so the, the, the five times of the alumot in the Joseph narrative plays off the prophecy of Rebecca with Yaakov and Esau, which is interesting play. In short, we are encouraged to think about the story of Yosef and his brothers in the context of Yaakov and Esau, but they're not the same. And the reason they're not the same is very simply this. And when it comes to Yaakov and Esau, the Torah makes it very clear, as clear as anything can be, that Yaakov and Esau walking the two different paths. We want them to be able to get along with each other. That's the hope. But they can't ever be one nation. They're completely separate and different. 
<coughs> it's a choice, it's one or the other. In the case of Yosef and the brothers though, it's not a choice of one or the other. Yaakov's dream was to build the bayit, the inclusive structure, which at the end of the book he will build. He's gonna bless all his 12 sons. No one gets excluded from the blessings. Some blessings are better than others, but everybody is included. So Yosef is not one you can simply, okay, you live your life, I live my life. That's not gonna work over here. The challenge is much greater. The challenge is, can we integrate Yosef into the family? Can Yosef become part of the family? That's the great challenge that has existed already and will exist till the end of this book. And it's not so simple. I will come back to the um, shortly. So this is it. So Yehud is recalling the, recalls his, uh, let's take another couple of verses. Next, next pasuk is, when we went up to our father, we, so we said all that my Lord has told us. And our father said, go back and get some more food for us. And, and yet Yehuda says to Yosef, we said to our father, we, we, we can't go. It's the next verse, scroll down. He had the same verse. We can't see the guy's face. If the, if the young child is a nenu itanu. He is very interesting, by the way. Here we have the word a nenu, which is, which is references Binyamin. It's another link between Yosef and Binyamin. Remember, Binyamin will function in the story as Yosef's proxy. He's the child, the Ben Zikunim, born to the mother that Yaakov loves, Rachel. So we have, and that's very important for the story because evidence of how the brothers would now treat Yosef is how they now treat Binyamin. And remember something else about Binyamin, that Yosef has gone out of his way, in effect, to favor Binyamin. When they're eating with Joseph in the house, he gives Binyamin five portions, five times as many portions as the other brothers. So he has been favored. So it's again puts Binyamin in the same kind of situation that for whatever reason, not Binyamin's fault, but he is favored by the viceroy of Egypt. He's favored by his father. His father doesn't want to let him go, lest bad things happen to him. But he doesn't say that about the other brothers. Henry Kareno Asson, right? But the other brothers, you, you go. But Binyamin have to protect. So Yosef has again set up a situation in which there's favoritism being shown towards Binyamin. And in effect, whatever Yosef's motive is, this is the test. Are the brothers going to go out of the way to try to protect this youngest brother who, first of all, might in theory be guilty of, of, the, of the crime. It's the crime that his mother did, stealing the magical object of the foreign culture. And not only that, the favored one, not just of the father, but even the viceroy of Egypt favors his kid. So that's the, that's the, that's the challenge over here. That's the challenge. So Yehuda says, we can't go that route. We can't see the guy's face if our little brother is not with us. Okay, before we get to the conclusion of Yehuda's speech, I wanna make one other point over here and then I'll take comments and questions. And that is, what's interesting in the speech, apart from everything that we've seen so far, is what Yehuda does not say. Yehuda never makes the case never says to Joseph, you know something? I don't think he actually stole the goblet. 
earlier they said, yes, how could we have stolen the Gabba? We even returned money. Now the, the argument we returned money and therefore could not have stolen the Gabba would not apply to Benjamin since Benjamin wasn't there the first time. But the strong, we have evidence, certainly, if you believe that the brothers know that Benjamin did not steal the Gabba, because they if they find their money in their own sacks, I raise it as a possibility. He returns all their Kesef. They know they didn't take the Kesef. If, if they actually know that there's Kesef in the sacks, which is not clear, but if they know that, then presumably they know something's very fishy going on over here because the money keeps getting returned to them and they didn't take it. The Ramban thinks that Joseph told them that he's giving back the money, but that's not in the text. He says that for this reason, if they, if they, if they, if they, if they, if, if they find it once again, they have to know that Benjamin's innocent. That's what the Ramban is thinking. It's not clear they know. But Yehuda never raises that as a possibility. He intimates that he knows he didn't take it. He says, we're all guilty, including the one in whose sack money was found. <laughs> Which sounds like it was found in his sack. But frankly, I don't think he took it. But he doesn't make that argument. And the point I wanted to emphasize is he doesn't make the argument. Because even though he, he may well believe that Benjamin is innocent, that's not the argument that's going to advance the cause. He has one goal over here, to let Benjamin go. So there's no point to argue that he's innocent because if he was framed, that's not gonna do any good anyway. If for whatever reason he's being framed, what good would it do? So the only argument he can make is a different argument, which is, a, we'll get to the actual argument he's making over here, but he never says ever that he leaves certain things out. He's very focused. He leaves out the fact that he probably didn't take it. He doesn't mention, for example, that the reason they come down to Egypt, part of the reason is not just the food, but, and this is a good question, their brother's being held hostage down there. Shimon was held hostage. So certainly some of the thinking's gotta be, strangely enough, Yaakov doesn't seem so concerned about that, but certainly possible that the brothers have an interest in freeing their, their, their fellow brother Shimon. Shimon's not Yaakov's favorite, no doubt, because of the Shechem business, and he's probably the ringleader in the sale of Joseph, or attempted murder of Joseph. But he, he never mentions that. Because what's the point? He's, he's, he has a particular goal over here, a particular kind of argument, which he thinks might work based on his understanding of this vice versa. Okay, let me, are there any comments or questions at this point? And I, Um, feel free to unmute yourself to ask a question or put them in the chat and I'll read them out. I think Aviva has a question. Um, it's more of a comment than a question. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, it's formulating, I'm not sure, but when you mentioned the parallels by Batel Levado and Pneha'ish, um, that both of these stories are a transformation. Jacob was transformed from Jacob to Israel. And the reconciliation of the brothers, this struggle and the mystery of who is the Ish. Um, was the Ish a Malach and is it the Ish? I mean, they don't know that who Joseph is. So I, I, it's not solid in my mind, but I think there's a, there's a struggle and an atonement and a transformation that's happening here. I agree. Let me let me just comment about at this point. I'll comment about what I was thinking about by Ivater, Yaakov Rivado, and mm -hmm. Binyamin by Ivater, who Rivado. And that is that 
as someone noted earlier, Joseph is called the Ish, actually. Bayomer Abdecha Ish Eleinu, right? Where was that? Where Joseph is, Kiyonu Chalorot Pneo Ish, right? Yes. Kiyonu Chalorot Pneo Ish, Biochinu Akatoni Nenuitor. Here Joseph is called the Ish, and earlier he's also called the Ish several times. Right. And they go down the first time. What and I mean, it's parallel with the mysterious. Right, that's right. I, I, I understand. So, what I was thinking was this that actually, in the case of Jacob, when Jacob is, Jacob can't cross over the Yabok. Everybody crosses over, but Jacob can't cross over because if he remains just Jacob, he's not worthy of crossing over. If he crosses over, he be, except he's getting to the covenantal blessing. And Yaakov has a history with his brother Asav, who's tricking Asav and his blind father. The only way Jacob can cross over is if he somehow transforms. The Ish over there is trying to block him. The Ish is there to stop him. And the way Yaakov overcomes the Ish is by coming somebody else. As the, as the Ish says, what's your name? Jacob. Not Jacob anymore. It's Israel. You have wrestled with God and with human and he have prevailed. And the case of Yaakov, he's able to cross over. Now it's not simple because he's wounded in the struggle. And that's the business there of the Gihan Noshad, the dislocated sinew. And it says, therefore, the children of Israel don't eat the dislocated sinew, because that's where this ish had, had hurt Jacob. But the point is, Jacob does cross over, and he does reconcile with his brothers, and he's able to relocate into the land. That's one story. Then there's another story, back in chapter 37, when Joseph is searching for his brothers, and he's trying to find his brothers in Shechem. <coughs> and ish finds Joseph, who was lost in the field. And the Ish says, what are you looking for? My brothers, I find, oh, they've already left here, he says. Nasumi said, they've left, they've gone to Dotan. And Joseph walks towards Dotan, they see him from a distance, they conspired to kill him. They send him down to Egypt, out of the land. And as a remark, in a sense, he's already out of the land before that. He missed the stop at Shechem, the last stop in the land. Goes down to Egypt, becomes an Egyptian for all practical purposes. And he names his first son Menashe, which means forgetfulness. So the striking parallel between Menashe, which represents relocating out of the land, and the Gid Hanoshe, which represents the ability to go into the land. So those are two cases. In this first instance, the Ish is overcome. In the second instance, the Ish overcomes Joseph, or sends Joseph out. Now we have another case. Now we have a case of where Benjamin is But the fact of the matter is, and I've pointed out that Benjamin Yes, Benjamin is the one who left for Jacob as far as Rachel was concerned. But in the story, in the biggest picture, the whole point is that Benjamin is Joseph's proxy. He's the Ben Zekunim, as Joseph was. He's the son of Rachel, as Joseph was. He's the favorite one, as Joseph was. And he's the litmus test how the brothers would actually behave towards Joseph. But the point over here is, I would say that is not just Benjamin, but the one who's actually alone separate from all every, rest of the entire family is actually Joseph. Joseph, Joseph is So the point is the way, the point is that Benjamin, that the danger over here is that Benjamin will be left alone, not, re, not, not, not reuniting with the family. But the only way to get Benjamin to reunite with the family is to overcome the Ish, which is Joseph. But in overcoming the Ish, which is Joseph, you also, Joseph overcoming Joseph because Benjamin represents Joseph. So the power of the story over here, it's exactly the question. It's really, it's about Benjamin, of course, but it's really about Joseph. Will Joseph be able to 
reconnect to his brothers or not. In order to do that, and one might say he has to overcome himself because he's the Ish, right? So he's the, he's the Ish, he's, he's, he is Benjamin. And the, how, can you, how can you defeat the Ish? The only way to defeat the Ish is not through power. Judah has no power. He's a slave, in effect. He calls himself a slave. He has no power. The only way is somehow convince Joseph to convince Joseph that Joseph has to take the step to, to, to reconnect with, with his brothers. That's the point over here. The, so it actually plays off the Ace of Yaakov story, but here the Ish is not as representing Ace of one might say. The Ish is, is actually representing Joseph. The Ish is Joseph. He's called the Ish. And let's see whether Yehuda's speech will be able to not just save Benjamin, but in, in effect to save Joseph. In, in reuniting Benjamin and saying, okay, Benjamin can reconnect to his father. What Joseph is really saying is I can reconnect to my father. And this is the internal struggle within Joseph. Who is Joseph? Is he the Egyptian? From every outward appearance, he is the Egyptian. On the other hand, he cries when he meets his brothers. He's mm -hmm. cried several times. And uh, this is the question. And on a moral plane, he's not an Egyptian. That's the story of Mrs. Potiphar. On a moral plane, he can't. That's what Egyptians do. Egyptians see and take. That's the first story of Mitzrayim. When Joseph says to Mrs. Potiphar, I can't do it, he's saying, in effect, I'm not this way. This is not how I was trained. Not, 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 not my values. I'm, I'm not put up this way. So, by Ma'ain, it says the Medrash, he saw his father's image. It's so true. So, this is the question. We come to a great climax over here. How will Joseph respond to the great speech? So that's the Yeah. Follow-up question. Do the brothers also undergo a transformation, or is it only Joseph who does? Well, the brothers have been going and undergoing a transformation ever since they got down to Egypt. For example, when they, when the, in the first story, they once and one said to his brothers, "We are guilty for our brother. We heard his cries and did not respond." Number two, they also say, uh, the brothers also say, when the money is found in the sack of one of them, what has God done to us? Plural. Uh, the brothers also say, with Benjamin, we shall all be your slaves. So yes, there's, everybody's got to be transformed over here. The brothers towards Joseph, Joseph toward the brothers, Yaakov towards Joseph. We'll get to all these. All the relationships have to be repaired. And, and it's not so simple to do it, as we'll see, and because there are different levels of repair. I, I would argue that at the end of this book, the brothers and Joseph, there's still some doubt about Joseph. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll see there. But, but, but there is enough trust to build a relationship to include Joseph in the family. I think that's Yaakov's mission is to include Joseph in the family. How he does it, we'll see. Um, okay, is anybody else who wants to comment now? We'll, uh, otherwise, we just continue with the speech. We're in the middle of Judah's speech. Um, okay, so let's, let's continue with the speech of Yehuda. This is um, up to verse number, verse number 27. Because Jacob Abdecha, your servant, our father, said to us, Atem yidatem You know, he says, he said, you know that my wife had two children. That's a remarkable verse, actually. Because it sounds like who's just reporting what our father said? He's not, he's not criticizing it. He's saying something which is very true. Let me tell you, he says, My wife had my wife had two children. Now Jacob has 12 sons and plus Dina. That we know of maybe more daughters too. But he's saying something which is true. He says, I have four wives, I have 12, at least 12 boys. But let me tell you something. I have one wife. Ishti is, is, is Rachel. 
And it's so true, by the way, when it, when it, when it gives the genealogies, the Rachel, Eshet Yaakov, Yosef, Ubin Yamin. A lot of wives, a lot of relationships, and one wife. That was the one he loved. That's the one he wanted to marry. He was tricked. He ends up with another wife, with a sister, whom he didn't want to marry. He was called initially the hated one. Okay, he makes his peace with Leah. But what's interesting, and interesting, by the way, that the Chumash is so precise. When Jacob is, is dying, about to die, he talks to his, all his children about burying him in the, in the family plot in Maratha Machpela. It's found at the very end of chapter 49. And he says to them, now read this verse at the end, it's a very striking verse at the end of chapter 49. I can find this here. After all the blessings, he says the following. He calls all of his, all of his sons over to him. It says, bury me in the grave of um, my ancestors. Uh, this is verse number 29 of chapter 49. In the grave that, that, that they purchased from Ephron, right? Verse number 30. Verse 31. Shama kavruat Abraham In that grave, says Jacob, they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Yitzchak and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. What word is missing in verse number 31? The word that's missing is, And there I buried Leah, my wife. He doesn't say that. I buried Leah. Abraham and his wife are buried there. Isaac and his wife are buried there. And there's Leah. Where is your wife? But no, she is my wife, of course, but my wife is Rachel. My wife's not buried there. Rachel's my wife. And my point over here is that when Yehuda reports, he's reporting to Joseph, because he's, he's Joseph's, Joseph's, he thinks, Joseph is thinking, this vice was thinking, here I see in front of me uh, 12, uh, 11 children. I see 11 children in front of me. Actually, there are 12. Joseph's there too, but he had you know, I see 11 children in front of me. What is the fuss about this kid? He's got 10 other kids. And you, Judas says, you don't understand something. His wife, he had, he had one wife. One of them is dead. One, one of the kids is dead. This, this is the only kid left to that wife, his beloved wife, Ishti. And my point is that Yehuda, in some sense, is coming to terms with this. He is actually, he's accepting it on, on some level. And that's actually a very important point. You know, you always want to, always want to change the other guy. And sometimes you come to a recognition that the other guy's not going to change. The person's not going to change. The person is an old person that they're set in their ways. And this is, and life has done many things. And you have to accept people sometimes for who they are. You can't change everything. And Yehuda says, let me tell you something. Our father had one wife, and that wife had two kids. And this is the only one left to, to, to his wife. Of course, we're, 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 we're his children, we care about him, he is our father. Obviously, he cares about him, it's his whole, that's the whole point. He cares deeply about him, but you have to understand it. And we understand it perfectly well. He, he only, there was only one woman he ever wanted to marry. He got stuck with three more, but that wasn't his choice. His choice was one. So that is part of the reconciliation here that has to happen. The brothers have to accept this. And 
it's very important that they accept it. And here you have a sense that Yehuda actually accepts it. And now he continues speaking. Now he talks in Yaakov with Yaakov. One who left me, and one of them left me, and I said, Surely Tarov Torah has been torn to pieces. I have not seen him hence till now. Earlier, he said he was dead to emphasize this is the only one left. And in this verse, I think what he's saying is, I said earlier that he died. Our father can't even accept that he died. That's what he's saying over here. He did, he, our, brother, our brother died a long time ago, but he's so heartbroken about this that he, you know, defying all logic, presumes maybe someday he'll come back, even though he hasn't seen him till this day. Of course, the person he's talking to is this person. So it's remarkable, but, but here the point is, he's trying to emphasize the degree of love that our father had for, this, for this, these two children of, his, of, of, Ishto, of Ishto. Of, the, of, the, of, the, of his wife. And now he continues speaking in Jacob's voice. If you take this one for me, and then an accident will take place, or rather, you will bring my old head down to Shaol in sorrow. Here it's interesting that, um, again, Jacob did say the Karol Ason, bad things might happen to him. Um, it's not, I think, a, co a coincidence that once again, another wing to Joseph from Jacob's perspective, because what is the name of, of, uh, of Joseph's wife? Joseph's wife is named Osnat. Osnat is playing on Ason. Joseph, in a sense, Karol Ason. Misfortune has betaken him overtaken him because he's married into the priesthood of Egypt. He's married the daughter of Potiphera Koenom, the priestly family of Egypt. And J Jacob is afraid that this one will be lost as well. Or rather, Temet, if you, if you go down, remember the brothers and the text talks all the time about going down to Egypt. And Judah says to Joseph, our father was concerned that in going down, to, for food, Loretta, to get the food, we will do something else instead. Instead of going down to get food, we will bring his head down. We'll bring him, him down, his white head down. So this is now. Now we get to Judah's final argument. So what is Judah saying? So now let's get let's just finish up the uh, speech and then we'll discuss it and questions and comments. If we go back, if I go back to my father, your servant, and the, one again, once, once again, the word a nenu, and the nar is a nenu, is not with us. Since his own life is bound up with the others. It's not even clear. Nafshok shurab nafshok was clear. His soul is bound up with the soul, but it's not clear which soul comes first. Is it Jacob's soul bound up with Benjamin or Benjamin's soul bound up with Jacob? It's both, actually, but it's interesting. Once again, the, you can't know about whom he's talking because the father and the child are basically one. That's, that's his point. So if that happens, and Nafshok Shurab and Nafshok, then the next verse, another ambiguity. Vayok Hiroto, when he sees Kien Hanar Vomate, when he sees that the boy Ain, once again, Ainenu, the third time, 
when the child is enenu vameit, how do you read vameit? The two ways to read it. You can read it two different ways. One way is if upon return he sees that the boy is not with us, then he will die, then vameit. That's one way to read it. He will die. There's another way to read it. And if we come back and he sees that the boy is not with us, and presume dead, that the vameit can be read as referring to Benjamin. He's not with us and therefore he's died. Just like the other child, just like the Enenu of Joseph. He's missing, but Judah said earlier, but he died. He probably died. He's not alive. He's a nenu, but he died. So this is, this is the same thing over here. If we come back without the, ch without the child, a nenu, he's not there, then he's presumed dead. So either you could once again read it both ways. Is the vermate going on Benjamin presumed dead? Or is the vermate what will happen to Jacob if we come back without Benjamin? Then your servants, in fact, will have brought down Sebat Avinu will bring our father's head down in grief to the grave, to Sha'ol. That's, that's the situation, he says. That's the situation. Now, what's interesting is, I want to, before we get to the bottom line of this, I want to make the point that what Judah probably picks up in the Joseph narrative is this. He doesn't know why. He knows he's concerned about the old father because he asked more than once about the old father. That's for sure. For some reason, he wants to see this child, this young child. Very important to see him. Who knows why? He has an interest in the young child and he gave him extra gifts. He cares about him. But there's something else over here as well, which is that for some reason, he doesn't know why, but for some reason, this viceroy of Egypt wants nobody to die. Because remember when the brothers, the brothers are accused of stealing the goblet, the brothers said, whoever took it should die and we will be slaves. And the fellow said to them, no, 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 no. Whoever took it will be a slave and the rest of you can go free. So he did, he did no, no one's gonna die. And Joseph said the same thing, we'll be a slave. For whatever reason, he understands that Joseph, the viceroy, doesn't want anybody to die. And Judah's whole speech is, well, you know something? If we do, if you do what you wanna do, somebody will die, somebody will die our father will die, and maybe even this child will die being separated from his father. So you, it's, it's counter to what you yourself have expressed as one of your concerns, that nobody will die. One or both will die. Nafsho kishurab nafsho. One soul is bound up with the other. If they're separated, one or both will die. So that's what Judah's picking up over here. It's a very good antenna. He's picking up on this. And that's the whole argument. It's not about innocence, guilt, or anything like that. That's not the point. He's picking up on what he believes the viceroy is concerned about. He doesn't know why the viceroy is concerned about it, but it's always true that the viceroy is concerned about it. Okay, now let's finish up here. Then I will take comments. How much more time do we have? Um, we have about 10 more minutes. Okay, so let's see, let's finish this up. And now, fine. Now let's just finish this up. Now he's explaining something. Why is, why, why is Judah speaking? Judah's not the oldest child, oldest son. Joseph knows the ages. He sat, sat them down at a table in size order. Why is Judah speaking? Why, why is he the one? So Judah says, your servant has tanar, has guaranteed, has pledged himself. I'm the Oreb, he says. I'm the Oreb. 
if if I don't bring it back, therefore I will be accounted a sinner all of my days, and therefore, so now, so take me instead of the boy. I'm the pledge. Take me, take your servant myself as a slave instead of this young boy. Let the boy go back with his brothers. Talks about Benjamin and the others as brothers. Yes, he's the son of the beloved wife. The others are not, but they're all brothers. Let him go back with his brothers. Take me instead because I pledge myself. How can I go back? Lest I see the evil that will befall my father. It's interesting, in other words. So here we have, of course, the lesson was taught him by Tamar, his Rebbe, uh, about the Eravon. The story of Yudah and Tamar taught two things. If you want to build a family, you need two things. You need confession. Many, and the taking of responsibility, the arrow of bone. We had the confession of Judah back earlier, and now we have the Arev, so I, since I place myself in his stead, I'm in his place, he says. I've already defined myself as being in his place. So if you want to take him, you can take me, because I, I stand in for my, for my brother. And the reason is because I made this commitment. And furthermore, it's got to be this way, because if I go back without him, I will see the evil that will before my father, and the evil that will before my father is what he said earlier. So this is Judah's speech, and if you're Yosef listening to the speech, it's a remarkable speech. It means that one of the children of Leah is willing to forfeit his life for the sake of the child of Rachel, the favored pampered child of Rachel, who was favored not just by his father, but also by very, very viceroy himself. And of course, the message would be that since you, Benjamin's role is to replace Joseph, so this is how they would act towards Joseph today, not the way they acted 20 years ago. This is how they would act today. Um, so now we're going to have Joseph's response to this amazing speech. But this is Judah's speech. Judah's speech is about self-sacrifice, basically. And more than self-sacrifice, it's about uh, willingness to become the slave. And here we have a very deep point about Judah. And this is the last thing I'll say about Judah. I'll take some comments and questions if there are. And that is, Judah is going to become, the, Judah's the leading brother. You already saw back in chapter 38 in Judah and Tamar, intimations of, uh, of uh, kingship. I'm not going over all the intimations. The intimation is not, not just leadership, but kingship. At the end of the day, the staff and the, and the staff and the seal, staff and the rod should not depart from Judah. He's going to become the king, and the king is a position of great authority. But what's interesting is how do you, how does one become the king? How, what, what 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 certifies Judah as the potential melech? What certifies Judah as the potential melech is his willingness to become the eved. Slave becomes the king. It's a very powerful idea. The slave becomes the king. And what they're really interesting is what they're really fighting over, something that later on plays out in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Tanakh in terms of Benjamin. In other words, who was going to actually, who lay claims on Benjamin? Is it Joseph who wants to keep Benjamin in Egypt with him, maybe to protect him? Or is it Judah who's willing to sacrifice himself 
and therefore to, to free Benjamin from slavery. At the end of the day, it's Judah that will overcome Joseph. This is how it works later on in the, in the Bible. First king of Israel is from Benjamin. And the second king of Israel is David. He, he ultimate kingship, and he's from Judah. Now let me stop at this point over here. Are there any comments or questions? Uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Silver? Oh. Yes. Um, the pasuk where he says that uh, Yaakov thinks that Yosef was torn apart by a wild animal, would that maybe give Yosef a clue that maybe all these years Yosef was wondering, did my father, was he have anything to do with what, what was done to me? He sent me there. And this maybe appeases him and gets him to reveal himself because he, now he understands that Yaakov had nothing to do with it and thinks he's been dead all these years. Right, so that's the argument of, 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 of Bin-Nun. Bin-Nun, uh, Bin-Nun makes the argument that Yosef was suspected he thinks that Yosef suspects that his father maybe was part of it. I don't actually believe that to be the case. I don't see any evidence. But yes, he's certainly hearing uh, in a very graphic way that his father has been mourning him all of these years. I, that probably he doesn't know that much. So that's something which is very powerful. Um, you know, again, Yosef is, Yud is not wrong about this. Yosef is asking about his father several times because he cares about him, you know. So I think that certainly when he hears this, I don't, I don't accept, I don't agree with the idea that he suspects his father. I would say the following. I don't think he suspects him of consciously setting him up. But what I will say, which is certainly true, is that Yaakov, not consciously, but, and that he didn't want it to happen. But at the end of the day, Yaakov does send Joseph to his brothers and he knows it's dangerous. And we know that because Joseph says he named me. Yeah. Go and find your brothers, and and Joseph says he made it. So he made it means it's dangerous. It's, it's clearly I'm, I'm willing to do it. I'll get it so for you. There's a price that may have to be paid. Yeah, so that's I would say that much certainly. Does have the question why Yosef never sent all, all these years? Why Yosef never sent a message to his father? And that's right. Sort of I, I spoke about that. I don't believe it's because he suspects his father. I think the answer is actually simple. He says why. Because he says, I want to, I'm, I'm starting a new life. And when you start a new life, I met, I grew up with people like this after, after the Holocaust, after the Shoah. They're in America, they're starting a new life. It doesn't mean everything was bad in Europe, and they have some good memories. But the fact is, I'm starting over. And that's what Yosef actually says. I'm going to forget the past. I'm starting over. I'm in, in a different country. I have a clean slate. I'll see how far it's going to take me takes him pretty far, but I don't believe, and nothing yet in the story that suggests that he has any negative feelings towards his father. On the contrary, he's concerned about his father. Uh, and certainly he doesn't think his father purposely sent him, send him away to be killed. I think that's, doesn't, I don't see the psukim supporting that theory. It's been known suggested, I don't think it's, it, I don't think it's correct. But mm -hmm. I, I think he wants to forget, you forget the whole picture. But he loves his father, but you can't just take part of it. You've got to forget the whole thing. Now, Shana, forget Kol Beitovi, he says it. I forget my past and Kol Beitovi, my suffering and all of my father's house, even the good parts of it. That's my take on it. So others have other views, but that's, that's my take. Okay. In, other words, yes, in other words, the text doesn't invite this question. That's right. I don't Do think that's. Think that do you think that uh, the Karahu Hassan 
happened in in Yaakov Avinu's opinion. He married Asanat, so Joseph's children aren't his grandchildren, and that's why he has to adopt them. Yes, I think certainly later on, I think that what Yaakov is, goes down to Egypt to do, in the, in the deeper sense, is not just to meet Joseph. He has to find a way to include Joseph within the family. That's the missing piece over here. Because at the end of the day, Joseph is, you know, he's partially, he's on a certain level, he's always a Jew in terms of his values to some extent. But on the other hand, he dresses like an Egyptian, he works for the Egyptians. And we've been through this and there's more to be said about that, we'll get there. And Yaakov's mission, which he has chosen to undertake, is to bring Joseph back into the family. Now, how he does it is very interesting. And Menashe and Ephraim are two Egyptian boys. And he's going to adopt them as his own, as he says, like Reuben and Shimon, et cetera. We'll get there. That's the whole central part of the story. Yaakov is the, I'm going to say the hero, the last part of Sefer Breshit. He finds a way to include Joseph, not just as a part of the family, but as a prominent part of the family, Bukhar, as it were. But that's so he's reversing, he's reversing an Asson. He is reversing the Yes, Asson. for sure. I mean, and the point of fact, by the way, I mean, this is a whole other point, but that if you think about the story of Joseph, I mean, this is a separate point, but I think the story of Joseph actually is that Joseph is separated from the family at age 17. And the point of, point of fact, you have to wonder about this Joseph. I mean, I'm not sure that the Chumash saying this explicitly, but if Joseph had not been sold into slavery, given his enormous talents, he might be one another, the fourth of the Avot, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I mean, Joseph is, but he spends his entire life basically in, in this culture of Mitzrayim, which is problematic. One might say he spends his, a good part of his life fighting off Mrs. Potiphar as, as, as symbolic of Mitzrayim and, and, and just surviving the culture of Egypt as a stranger, etc., as a Jew. And that's the that's his those are Joseph's struggles. But the Asson, one could say, is that being sold into to Egypt of all places, sold into slavery is what he's sold into. You spend your life fighting that, and that that precludes you having other battles, other struggles, which is you know, coming another Abraham or something. He's not an Abraham. He's not a Jacob either. He's Joseph with his own skills, but he's he's in a different arena. That's my that's the point I would make. But for sure. Jacob's role will be to bring Joseph back, the Egyptian Joseph back. We'll get there later on. Um, okay, so I have one Yes. I have one comment, the regular comment. You're a genius, Rabbi Silver. Well, whatever. <laughs> Thanks for the compliment. I wouldn't put it that way, but okay. Um, all right. Uh, so we'll continue next week with this great story. And uh, you have Pouring Joseph's Samer. response. This is very striking. Purim Samer. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's marvelous. Thank you so thank much you. to Rabbi Silver and thank you to everyone who has participated and asked questions. As always, I'm so impressed with the questions in this class. Before you go, I want to extend an invitation to you all because later today, uh, if you've not had your fill of learning, we have uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern time, um, a another shear with Rabbi Silver along with Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens, um, a pre-Purim program, Living in a World with a Hidden God. Um, you can register for this excellent uh, event today with the link that I just put in the chat, purim.drisha.org. 
Um, it's a perfect way to prepare for Purim. And we also have um, the Rappaport Family Memorial Lecture coming up um, for uh, on the theme of Passover, the Seder within the Passover Seder um, with Rabbi Nathan Laufer. And you can register for that at rappaport.drisha.org. Um, so uh, thank you all. That's for... on the 19th, right? That's, yes. Well, yes, sorry, that's, that's Sunday. Class. Sunday, the 19th of March at 12, uh, 12 p.m. Eastern. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, everyone. See you next week or later. Thank you. Bye-bye.